Is hell. All right then. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell, and on today's show, there is no alternative. At least that's what we've been told over and over again. There is no alternative. Ad nauseum by the people who are in control, who like things just as they are. Thank you very much. This is as good as it gets. We'll never get any better. All of human history has led to this point of perfection, and we will never see anything but minor improvements on our Western liberal capitalist representative democratic model, which has proven to be humanity's greatest achievement. Sure enough, it is the end of history, and nothing will ever change again other than incrementally. I mean, sure, it would be great if we could come up with a better way of living, something even more democratic, something that doesn't create such, so many inequalities and disparities, but nobody has ever come up with that utopian model, so we might as well settle for the best we've been able to come up with so far, and that's the crappy situation we find ourselves in today. But what if another world is not only possible, but it is already happening today, right now, and not just as a flash in the pan, but sustained, autonomous, direct democracy that can be our far more fair, far more equitable and far less destructive future. We will learn about the revolutions that are turning our world into a better place in a few when we have the return of activist, writer, and editor Cindy Milstein, author of, or editor of, uh, Deciding for Ourselves, The Promise of Direct Democracy, a collection of essays. Cindy co-organizes the Institute for Advanced Troublemaking's Anarchist Summer School in Worcester, Massachusetts, and is also honored when called on to do death doula and grief care. Cindy is the editor and a contributor to the essay collection, Rebellious Morning, the collective work of grief, which we discussed with Cindy back on November 4th, 2017. You can hear that conversation on our website, thisishell.com. When you search on her name, Cindy Milstein. To find out more about Cindy and read more of her writing, visit cbmilstein.wordpress.com and follow Cindy on Twitter at Cindy Milstein. That's M-I-L-S-T-E-I-N. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, what'd you do this weekend? Got a trouble in the compost pile. Oh, what happened? I got too many greens, not enough browns. <laughs> I don't know. That seems like it could be a critique of the environmental movement. But what <laughs> I mean is, if anyone knows uh, how to scrounge around some uh, carbon-rich dead material, uh, let me know, because I got all these vegetable scraps and I need some leaves. Where am I going to get leaves? I have no... Uh, come over to my house. Okay. <laughs> They're all over our parking. We have tons of them. And my downstairs neighbor loves to compost. They never do anything with the compost except for store it in our building. No, I... I don't think you're supposed to do that. No, I don't think so either. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is Scrapple. Disgusting. 
Have you had Scrabble before? Yes. It ain't that bad. Ugh. In an article headlined, These 10 Regional Foods Could Be the Hangover Cures You Need, which has already given us the hangover cures of the disgusting Cincinnati chili. Disgusting. The even more loathsome garbage plate. Horrible. But what also promises to be the delicious Louisville Hot Brown and Alex's favorite so far, the Sonoran Hot Dog. This week we have the Philadelphia favorite, Scrapple. Writer Kay Lani reports at USA Today's 10best.com site, Scrapple might just be one of Philadelphia region's favorite breakfast staples. It Okay, now. <laughs> See? <laughs> it's, the, it's the stewed bits of meat that butchers couldn't use. In other, I don't even have a problem with butchers not using something in the other products. I just stewed bits is bad. Mixed with cornmeal ooh, and spices and then formed into a loaf. Once fried, the deliciously salty and fatty Scrapple is the perfect accompaniment to the classic breakfast of eggs and home fries. That makes this week's Hangover Cure, Scrapple. It is better than Spam. Uh, not as good as a pork roll. Oh, wait, I've had that. I, wait, it's, a it's long the, time it's ago. The, it's the same crap. Is it? Uh, pork roll is on a uh, uh, Taylor Taylor Ham, I think is the name of it. Okay. It's a, it's a Philly or a Jersey thing. Uh, pork roll is very good. It's it's all it's all the same word, garbage meat. <laughs> it's slightly, de- uh, slightly packaged differently. <laughs> Uh, it just makes me remember how much I like mock chicken. Any kind of meat that has the word mock in Wait, front of it. Wait, what's mock chicken? <laughs> it's not chicken, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Get that from a wet market somewhere. <laughs> the future ain't what it used to be. This is hell since the last time we talked. In his support of protests at state capitals around the United States, President Trump has called for popular insurrections against state governments that have as their governors members of the Democratic Party. Protesters have arrived at these events armed with AK-47s and carrying Confederate flags. Can you imagine how all those people at those protests would react if they were sitting at home and saw armed communists marching around their state capitol carrying flags with hammers and sickles? Those snowflake Karens and Carls, by the way, I believe is the masculine form of a Karen, would melt into a spineless puddle of pearl-clutching faster than you can say gay marriage. You know how in old cartoons, if someone was mad, they would have tea kettle steam whistling out their ears? If armed commies were marching around the state capitol, you wouldn't be able to hear their chants because so many conservative minds would be blown into a chorus of boiling over. Remember when Republicans believed in states' rights? Now their president is actively asking for the overthrow of state governments that are not affiliated with his political party. Were all those states' rights conservatives and Republicans when President Trump is... Where are all those states' rights conservatives and Republicans when President Trump is tweeting for the liberation of states from their elected leaders? And what about all those Republican calls for unity? How does posting liberate Michigan, liberate Pennsylvania, liberate Minnesota, how does that bring about unity? Isn't that, by definition, a call for divisiveness and division? So, what are Republican values nowadays? They used to be all about states' rights. That has been abandoned by President Trump, who insisted he had authority over the states, forgetting that the colonies created the federal government, and not the other way around. I remember when Republicans were very concerned about the national debt, and insisted that there be a balanced budget with absolutely no federal deficit whatsoever to stop the Democrats from doing any of their spending, their profligate spending that Republicans were complaining about. Now the federal budget is at their federal deficit is at record levels, gaining by almost a trillion dollars a year. And Fox News is no longer showing that sign in New York City that displays the national debt constantly mounting like they did when Democrats were in the White House. 
I remember when Republicans insisted that no president ever negotiate with terrorists, forcing Democrats to abandon the idea of diplomacy when they were in the White House. That's talking with the enemy, and, and they stopped talking with the enemy, and the Republicans would not put up with it. They always likened any kind of diplomacy by the Democrats to a Neville Chamberlain kind of concession with Nazis. Now, Trump openly talks with Kim Jong-un, who has made military threats against the United States while refusing to speak with Iran. So not only is Republican policy making inconsistent, being inconsistent, depending upon if they're in the White House or if a Democrat is, it's also inconsistent within the Trump administration itself, negotiating with some terrorists, but not others, or at least nations the United States has claimed were supporters of terrorism. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm no deficit hawk, and I believe that democratic channels should always be open with very uh, every government in the constant pursuit of world peace and the end of violence against humanity. But I, I simply don't know what the Republicans are supposed to stand for anymore. I don't know what their values are that they represent because they seem to complain about things Democrats do while the Dems are in office and then turn around and do whatever they were keeping the other side from doing while in power. Meanwhile, the Republicans are sliding closer and closer to fascism, friendliness, uh, sorry, fascism, friendliness, insisting centrist Democrats to make Chamberlain-esque concessions to their increasingly rabid reactionary base and bipartisan members of the Democratic Party are ready to work with you as they always are, coddling fascists and allowing their dog whistles instead of calling them out for their fomenting of hatred. Yeah, I know Democratic Party values are pretty effed up too. They don't really seem to stand for anything any more than the Republicans do. Then Other than whatever Trump is doing must be wrong, so let's wait for him to act. Then we'll react with the same snowflake-like offense white supremacists show off when their privilege is in any way limited. If the Democrats are no longer anything but a reactive movement waiting for the Trump administration to frame the discussion and then display offense, the Democratic Party is defined by what Trump is not, defined by a negative which is a very uninspirational foundation for any movement, then we better figure out what the Trump administration is so we know what the Democratic Party is not. Again, being defined by what you are not is not the best way to motivate people. Nike's slogan is, is just do it, not don't wear pumas. So what does the Republican Party as constituted in those state capital protests where President Trump is inciting insurrection to overthrow democratically elected leaders in an armed coup? What does it represent if it does not support states' rights? If it believes the federal government should rule the country unabated? If it believes the national debt and deficit are no big thing? What do they embrace as values if all of that was just political BS. And for that matter, what do the Democrats stand for nowadays? They certainly don't stand for universal health care or raising the minimum wage or union organizing or they're not opposed to mass incarceration or unfettered capitalism. So what are their values? It appears neither party has values, only talking points and marketing strategies to run advertising campaigns, misleading the public into supporting them by distracting the electorate from the real substantive issues of our time that never get addressed, like ending poverty, inequality, and mitigating the worst aspects of self-imposed global destruction. It doesn't seem as if either party has any values that they cherish, embrace, and hold close to their hearts at all. They have no real beliefs other than believing in whatever is necessary to say or do to gain a few more clicks, a few more votes in that moment in hopes the media will dumb it down into a catchphrase the viewers can easily consume. The only value either side seems to have is winning. What will it take to win? Not what is best for voters, what is best for everyone living in the United States, but what wins votes or wins 
apathy for their opposition. Oh, and the Republicans stand for white supremacy. And the Democrats are cool with that because they love making concessions with anybody, even fascists. Yes. This is hell coming up. There is no alternative. Okay, there are plenty of alternatives, and they're happening all around the world at this very moment. We'll also have rotten history and what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Noam Chomsky called This is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam has gone insane. This is hell. We've been told there is no alternative for decades, that what we have with representative democracy within capitalism is as good as it gets, as it has ever been and will ever be. And that's because nothing better has ever been able to be sustained. Here to help us that other worlds are possible and that they are happening right now. Returning to This Is Hell, activist, writer, and editor Cindy Milstein is editor of the collection of essays, Deciding for Ourselves, The Promise of Direct Democracy, which features writing by a couple of past This Is Hell guests, Delar Derrick and Nico Giorgiadis. Cindy co-organizes the Institute for Advanced Troublemaking's Anarchist Summer School in Worcester, Massachusetts, and is also honored when called on to do death doula and grief care. You might remember Cindy being on our show back in November of 2017 to talk about her spectacular edited book, Rebellious Morning, The Collective Work of Grief, another collection of essays. You can follow Cindy on Twitter at Cindy Milstein. Welcome back to This Is How, Cindy. Hey, great to be back. Your title is even more appropriate now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> thank you. I don't know if I should say thank you, though. That's not really a good no, thing. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed our conversation back in November of 2017. I just want to say this again. For all of our listeners, go back and check out that uh, conversation that we had with Cindy. Her book is, uh, that book was Rebellious Morning, The Collective Work of Grief, and it really is a spectacular book. And you can find that interview at our uh, website, thisishell.com, by searching on Milstein, M-I-L-S-T-E-I-N. I want to start with some real basic questions, Cindy, just for people who do not know, because a lot of people are looking for alternatives when we are finally out of quarantine. What is direct democracy? How does it differentiate from the representative democracy we have here in the U.S.? How is it more democratic than what we have here in the U.S.? Yeah, I I don't even know if I would call what we have here in the United States uh, democracy. Um, This uh, place called uh, the United States was, um, after the revolution um, over 200 years ago, which had already dispossessed certain people, like indigenous people and other folks. But that revolution, there was a revolution within that revolution afterward to figure out what kind of sort of governance structure to put in place. And the folks that wanted more directly democratic or self-governing structures, much more face-to-face, localized, contextualized, they lost out in the fight. And what we ended up with a was a republic system with um, you know, a very very highly top-down centralized structure with a president and a Congress and, um, you know, ostensibly people that represent folks, but um, technically a republic. Um, democracy, the term means sort of the rule of the many or everyone. Um, so, you know, it, to my mind, the what's more interesting rather than the terminology is, is uh, that humans throughout their history on this planet have always engaged in forms of face-to-face making decisions with each other. And I don't even think the alternatives are really waiting right now until we're out of quarantine. There's just been this enormous flowering of people self-organizing and making decisions for themselves, like how to get um, 
personal protective equipment into emergency rooms. You know, people, the top-down structures aren't working. (laughs) And so people are turning to each other and going, how can we do this? How can we make them? How can we find them? How can we figure out ways to actually construct them that are even better than the N95s without having to rely on, you know, capitalist infrastructure? So embryonic right now is already the beginnings of potentially people... um, you know, deciding for themselves, which is how I understand democracy. Um, Unfortunately, because what has happened in this place called the United States is um, to me, it's a, it's sort of this great, um, yeah, it's a, it's what's to me particularly sort of devious about these kinds of structures or systems is they create such a cover for themselves. (laughs) they, They create a mask so that they get people to sort of agree to their own um, subservience. Um, and people like, well, hang on to, we're free, we're democratic, even as they're not either. <laughs> um, and so, you know, other people have started using the term direct democracy to really emphasize, no, you can't make decisions with, with other people unless you're doing it together. Um, other terms, you know, would be assemblies or councils or face-to-face structures, self-governance. But again, the terminology is to me less, sort of less interesting than the actual practices of people doing it, which feel qualitatively different and by and large, you know, get people what they need and desire a lot more effect- effectively. Um, yeah. And the last point I kind of want to make on this on this topic is I think we've actually moved, f- setting aside the terms of debate, I think we've moved way beyond um, a, even a republic right now. I think we're pretty much into a fascistic, tyrannical regime. Um, people kind of romanticize structures thinking they're still there until it's too late. <laughs> and then, um, again, fascism is is also, it's this, you know, these large sales structures, they're not human beings, but as structures, they're sort of these, or, you know, organisms that, that, that grow. Um, you know, by the time, if you look at any sort of fascistic or tyrannical structures, by the time they fully take hold, it's sort of already too late <laughs> to contest them. But, you know, I think we're really headed, you know, when you're, you know, you have a president who, says, I don't care what anyone says, I'm going to do what I want, and no one stops him from doing what he wants. Um, when, you know, you have the beginnings of what looked like a civil war, there's already been in the last couple of years lots of white supremacists just murdering people when they feel like it with impunity and police. Um, you know, we always already, the structures are already in place in voting, sort of, you know, in Wisconsin about a week ago, um, there was the primary, and um, at the very last second, sort of the far right outmaneuvered the Democratic governor, and both the Wisconsin Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court said, nope, you can't, you got to go ahead with the election, even though if you were going to have a directly democratic structure, pretty much most people in Wisconsin were like, you know, this seems really unsafe for all of us to get together right now. Why don't we wait a while? You know, so again, to come back to why would we want to, you know, direct democracy is kind of the common sense, for instance, in Wisconsin a week or so ago, was pretty much everyone seemed to be like, this makes no common sense to gather people close together for something that could wait a few weeks. Um, But a small number of, you know, pretty powerful folks who control courts that have the last word, really a handful of people sitting in a room thousands of miles away said, nope, you got to go, you got to go. And so most people didn't go most because they made a choice between, you know, a vote versus their life and or the life of their communities. So, you know, so to me, it's irrational, you know, the whole thing's sort of irrational. We want, you know, 
I don't want to embrace my own unfreedom, my own dis, you know, my own removal from the world. I, I don't think most people want to. We want to be part of the lives that, um, you know, and right now we're seeing that kind of jumping all over the place. But right now we're seeing this beautiful, I don't know, beautiful flowering of in a way people, it's been called, it's called mutual aid, but which it is people cooperating to get each other what they need and what they want and what they're, you know, desperate for right now in terms of housing, food, healthcare. But on the other hand, they're doing it in a way that's qualitatively beautiful and they find each other and they make decisions together and they see that it actually works. That's, that's again, the beginning of what it, that's all really direct democracy is, is turning to each other and going, hey, we kind of all have what we already need. Let's, let's figure out how to get this done. I find it so ironic with the idea of mutual aid and how it's come about that there's this lack of federal government response. It seems like that lack of federal government response was intended to bring about or hope for a non-governmental response, but instead a market solution to the to the COVID virus. And instead of it organizing around the market, all of a sudden there was self-organizing happening. So the vacuum that was created by the government not doing anything was not fulfilled by the market, but seems to be fulfilled by the public in general in a self-organizing way, which is fantastic. And you start your book with a quote from sociologist John Holloway, writing in his 2010 book, Crack Capitalism. Imagine a sheet of ice covering a dark lake of possibilities. We scream no so loud that the ice begins to crack. What is it that is covered? What is that dark liquid that sometimes not always slowly or quickly bubbles up through the crack? We shall call it dignity. Cindy, what is the likelihood that dignity can bubble up through the cracks of the way we live due to COVID-19? Can this be one of those times capitalism cracks and dignity bubbles up? And if so, why can this happen during a global pandemic? What does that say about that kind of transformation when a global pandemic might be able to bring it about? Yeah, I, you know, these are... It's, it's sort of a tray. It's like no one would hopefully wish a global pandemic on on us. And so I don't want to use the language of, oh, this is an opportunity because I don't feel at all that it is. Um, but what a global pandemic shows is all increasing forms of basically capitalist-fueled climate catastrophe because this is where this pandemic comes from. It's yet another impact of... Um, Ecocide that's being um, promulgated by capitalism and uh, backed up by states who have let capitalism do whatever it it wants to as a structure. Um, we're now seeing, you know, net yet another ramification of of climate change, which is um, what what climate change does is it it sort of removes the hubris of some humans that think they can control everything or everyone. And says, you know, we're actually all on this thing called the earth together. <laughs> and we're all, you know, we're just creatures like any other creature on this planet that are super interdependent with each other, need ecosystems, need each other to survive and thrive. And it, it's really, in a way, a humbling, it sh- should be or could be a humbling moment when we realize the deep interconnection again, um, especially in a place like the so-called United States, which I think almost more than any other place in the world has so been structured by hypercapitalism um, and this kind of individualistic ethos of the mythology of the founding of the United States that, you know, the the lone individual is kind of who's going to take care of themselves, which is, is just fictional to begin with. But so this moment uncovers that fiction, just lays it bare. 
and makes us realize that, you know, every, the impact, we all have an impact on each other. We always do, <laughs> but this makes that really clear. So, you know, how we just, what we choose to do in this moment, whether we choose to, you know, try to um, stay spatially or physically distanced from each other, um, but socially connected make is to me what's going to sort of allow less people to suffer and die if we can do it well and also improve the quality of life for more people if we can do it well. Um, a really good example of that right now is the we have the by far the largest prison system in the world, unequaled <laughs> um, and um, really brutal and, and very disproportionate in terms of who gets put into prisons by, you know, race, gender, economic uh, class, etc. Um, and so now we're having this moment where everyone inside a prison has basically been handed a life sentence because the, it's so, you can't sp physically distance within a prison. And so suddenly this this move, which many sort of radicals have been advocating for a long time, is we need prison, prisons are not a way to resolve social conflict. They're not a way to deal with, with uh, things that happen in, in society. Um, especially since the vast majority of prisons, people in prisons are there um, not for the, you know, the, the examples that people always point to. What are we going to do about the serial killers? That's most people in prison are not there because they're serial killers. So, um, so what this moment is like, there's actually been a lot of people, not enough, but a lot of people released from prisons and jails um, out of the sort of social good for the more people that get this virus the more it's going to be impossible <laughs> to contain it, right? So there's these ways in which we kind of look at the structures. I think people are looking at the, the sort of structures of the society and going, does this actually make any sense right now when we think about the interrelationship with the, that we have with each other, our interdependence, our dignity, our sense of, you know, care for each other and common good? I think it really brings those things to the fore. Um, and, you know, I, I Another aspect of it, which I think in a way does too, is part of the way to flatten the curve and hinder the, slow the virus in order for it to uh, be dealt with in any remotely reasonable way within uh, uh, healthcare structures and uh, institutions that take care of people after they die and all these other things. Um, in order to do that, people need to physically distance and that means closing down most things that people think of as part of their daily life and that they think of as their identity. You know, well, here, when you ask people here what, what they do, they usually tell you what they do to make money, which to my mind is not what I do. I do what I care about and what I'm passionate about and what I want to do. How I make money is the least interesting part of myself. Um, but that's pretty defining for a lot of people. Um, so what they do or what they buy or where they go to entertain themselves all involve this commodified sort of relationship to themselves. And suddenly, you know, vast majorities of people are, are, are being separated from all the ways they would usually define themselves with just a huge emotional loss in forms of grief and causes material impoverishment and a whole host of awful things. So I don't want to minimize what that does too. People can lose their jobs and they can lose their house. They can lose a whole bunch of other things. But I think it gets down to us kind of having to look at ourselves and say, hey, without all these other structures around me, who am I? What am I inherently worth? What is? What are the people I love? You know, it, it's kind of one of those global moments where we're also experiencing collective grief. Where we're also kind of like when people face their own mortality and, and 
themselves sort of laid bare. They're like, you know, what's really worth it when it comes down to it is who I love, who I care for, my own dignity, the things that make me me without all this sort of apparatus of capitalism and the state. And, and I think that is both the grief <laughs> and the necessity are compelling people um, to figure out ways to take care of each other. And mutual aid, again, is nothing but the common sense of saying, hey, people can cooperate with each other. And when they cooperate, there's a far better chance that they will not only survive, but they'll thrive. And we're seeing that with the mutual aid projects that are emerging is, you know, if left to capitalism and the state, there would be so many more people in prison dying and so many more healthcare workers dying and so many people going without food because they can't get out of their houses. And mutual aid is stepping in to say, hey, we could figure out a way where we can, you know, some of us can cook and but keep distance from each other, but then we can deliver food to people so people don't have to go out and you know, we'll be careful about that, but we'll figure out ways to make sure everyone in our neighborhood can eat. And we'll figure out ways to get protective equipment to people who need it, you know, whether they're delivering mail or they're in an emergency room. Um, you know, that's, I, I just really think we're getting back to this kind of basics of like what really matters in life, life right? And on this imperiled planet. And, and then, then there's the flip side of it. This moment is an opportunity in the worst sense for political parties and fascistic heads of states and the far right and white supremacists, you know, they're pouring out saying, we're not going to socially distance. We're going to crowd together with swastikas and other sorts of racist symbols in front of state houses. And, you know, think about armed insurrection is like, you know, even as much as I despise their worldviews and don't have any sympathy for them, they're also part of this same collective interdependence that we, you know, when they do that, it's not just, I've seen a lot of people say, well, let them go catch it. They'll, you know, fine if they, I don't like them, if they all get sick, but they're out in the world too. They are doing things, you know, we're all interconnected. If they decide to do that, it impacts other people. And the sad part about it is in a few months, they'll realize when they start getting sicker and needing to go to hospitals and needing those care workers and needing to get groceries delivered to them. You know, it's not something that I think is a lovely moment <laughs> to think about. Um, but we really do have this contest right now, which is scary to my mind. I don't think it's a given that mutual aid will win out. We have It's a contest that involves all of us making a choice at this crossroads. Do we want to turn to our, you know, in any ways we can make social connection right now? And there's a lot of ways we can do it without, even if we're staying in our house, going outside by leaving, you know, Notes for I've seen all sorts of beautiful examples in public when people are keeping distance from each other about how people can make social connections and lend mutual aid. Do we want to make the choice to turn to each other and say we can decide this world for ourselves and it can't go back to how it was before, even if we want it to, and it shouldn't? What would it look like if we don't rely on crappy paid jobs that don't pay the rent because most people can barely survive <laughs> anyway? What it, would it look like if we don't rely on a state that's not remotely meeting anyone's needs? You know, what does it look like if we say, hey, you know, white supremacy and patriarchy is not really working? What would it look like if we really move towards social solidarity and collective care and deciding for ourselves at this moment? You know, and then other people are saying, hey, what would it look like if we tried to grab power and really, you know, put fascism in place so that when people emerge from their homes, it's too late. They're already under our control. And those things are both real possibilities right now. <laughs> um, but I think each of us needs to like take a hard look at ourselves and say, which, which, which choice do I want to make, right? 
Yeah, and the other thing, uh, as you point out from uh, Holloway's book, Crack Capitalism, uh, he discusses the shortcoming of activism when it is centered around a strategy that very much resembles a typical job you could find in any business today. Holloway writes, the real detriment of society is hidden behind the state and the economy. It is the way in which our everyday activity is organized, the subordination of our doing to the dictates of abstract labor, that is, of value, money, profit. It is this abstraction which is, after all, the very existence of the state. If we want to change society, we must stop the subordination of our activity to abstract labor and do something else. So must activists change their activity to change society? Do we have to organize in ways that do not resemble an office or a store or a restaurant or a factory to change society? And why don't those structures work in changing society? Because we already have that kind of structure in place. We understand those kind of structures. So why don't those structures work in changing society? Yeah. Um, well, first, I, 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 I'm not a big fan of the word activist because I think it's a reactive kind of mode. Like you just run around and be active and reactive. And I, I think we're all like organizing a new world together. And that's about us changing our social relationships to each other. And so, you know, even, you know, a lot of the institutions you mentioned are a relationship of like um, basically one person serving another person. <laughs> one person has power over another person. Um you know, it's it's a form of, in other cases, it's a form of ch- charity, not solidarity. But at the heart of all those structures, there's really intense power imbalances and um, a very small minority of people, increasingly small, um, have make vast amounts of, of, of money off of the off of that and live really well. And the vast majority of people are, are so impoverished right now that, you know, not being able to pay rent for one month in this place called the United States, um, for most people, when they've lost their job for a month, which is what's happening, the unemployment figures are unbelievably high. <laughs> when people can't pay the rent for one month, they don't have any money to pay the rent for the next, like people don't have any extra money sitting around the vast majority of humans, right? And if you left it up to those in power, they'd say, we don't care. You know, if there's more people in the streets living, more people in prisons, you know, the numbers have already been increasing of people that have been turned into disposable here. So really this, again, comes down to like, what would it look like to not think of each other as disposable, to think of us each as having inherent worth and then trying to figure out together. And I really... I don't know, this anthology, I think what I really love about this anthology, Deciding for Ourselves, is there isn't one right way to decide for ourselves to self-determine and self-govern. There's many ways. There's as many ways as there are different communities and cultures and issues and desires. And people figure out what they need for where they live and the ecosystem and what they can grow and what the weather's like, (laughs) what kind of shelter they need. That looks different everywhere, right? So, um, so I think this moment is what's happening is, again, this like sort of the emperor's new clothes is being pulled off of capitalism and the state, and it's cannot go back. I mean, in another month, most people will be facing what under the prior system before COVID would have been immediate eviction because they failed to pay their rent. But would it be possible to evict the majority of people from their houses at this point? You would probably need an army to do that. So that's one option, or white supremacists with guns to do that, which is another option, Or the other option is people go, huh, you know, housing as a commodity is a pretty 
recent invention in human history. Housing has often been and still is in places, something people get together and build themselves and share and use until they don't need and then let someone else use it. And housing, we have enough housing for everybody to have a roof over their head. So maybe when the emperor's new clothes comes off at this point and we realize, hey, there's got to be different ways to structure this. And again, this COVID moment is already pointing to that as people, you know, or those who could um, do this stay at home because some people are in, you know, refugee camps or detention centers or prisons or, but, um, or living on the street. Um, those who are told to stay at home, a lot of people start thinking about, okay, who do I want to stay at home with? And how do I re- want to rearrange how we live together and what kind of living situations feel good? And another thing that's skyrocketing right now is um, people being beaten or sexually assaulted by the people they supposedly love within their homes. When you stay at home, it's often not necessarily a healthy environment either. So again, maybe people will take this moment to start rethinking, wow, what have we allowed patriarchy to do to us? Are these structures of sort of heteronormative relationships where one person has supreme control over another because of a marriage document or because they're male and someone else's or whatever the reasons are, May we want to think about different ways of living together and taking care of each other. And so some of the mutual aid projects that are pointing to that are, you know, ways to figure out getting people alternative shelters when we need to socially distance from each other that allow them not to be beaten or sexually assaulted or have to live in the street. Um, You know, they're not big enough. They're not meeting everyone's needs, but they're the beginnings of people asking that questions in the places they live. Um, They're the beginnings of people saying, hey, how could we do things together to have to, to keep healthy, to enjoy ourselves, to, to, to you know, engage in recreation for life. I don't, don't even lack that term. To engage in things that would make us feel pleasure in the world. And you see this reemergence of people biking and, you know, running and dancing and writing poetry on the sidewalks with chalk or, you know, um, making sculptures for other people to see or putting beautiful signs in their windows or walking. And so you have a reemergence in a way of people when they don't have what capitalism tells them they need to entertain themselves, figuring out, wow, there's a real pleasure in walking. There's a pleasure in reading. There's a pleasure in, you know, tending to my garden. And there's a pleasure and I can actually grow my own food so I don't have to be reliant on, you know, grocery stores running out or grocery stores being too dangerous to go into. There's this profound shift happening. But again, it's a choice. You know, people are having to look at their lives and say, wow, it actually kind of feels qualitatively nicer in ways to go for walks every day. It feels horrible to have to be stuck in my house away from people I love and want to hug and all the other social relationships. But I think I want to hang on to that walking every day. <laughs> How could I do that in a way that would feel different after, when we come out of this? Because coming out of this is not going to be fast. And it's going to it's going to call all the structures into question. And the people that are good at Answering that, again, are the totalitarians. Their answer is, stay in your houses, we'll control you, we'll make your lives bleak and miserable, which has happened under any kind of totalitarian regime. If a lot of you have to die, who cares? That's one answer. (laughs) The other answer when capitalism and state and all these other things are starting to crumble is, you know, we're already doing the answer right now. So how could we try to do that more? How could we think about sharing? I mean, if you're on a mutual aid, I don't know if you're part of any, all the mutual aid groups, it's been really beautiful where people are like, oh, you know, I've run out of this. Who has that? So there's a sharing of things that people have too much of, which most, many people do. 
But there's also, I've seen this real outpouring of people going, hey, I have a, I have a knowledge, a wisdom I could share with you. I have a skill I could share with you. I have a, a listening to share with you because you're hurting and I can, I can be there for you. Um, you know, what, all the gifts we have are really coming. Like, again, I really want to come back to that. I think people are looking into themselves and saying, huh, I don't have this apparatus that tells me who I am. Now I really have to struggle with who I am without all of that. And who I am maybe is a really caring person who's really good at listening to people after they've had some loss in their life. So I'm going to do that for people right now. Or, you know, my my gift is that I'm really good at drawing. So I'm going to draw these really beautiful pieces of art and post them around my city so that people can remember that there's other ways to live. Or whatever, you know, I'm good at gardening so I can teach all of my all the people in my neighborhood how to grow their own food. You know, we have these we have the capacity. We already are. <laughs> Many people have been saying this, actually. They're like the reason that, you know, the the fascists and who many of whom are contiguous with the people that own vast amounts of wealth right now. Um, and I'm using fascism very loosely, but, but I, I would call them mostly fascist or hyper authoritarians. Um, but a lot of them are also profoundly wealthy. And, you know, they're like, get back to work, get back to work, because their wealth is built on everybody making the world. And if people don't want to go back to making that world, we can make something else. Yeah. Um, and so what kind of healthcare would we make in place of the structure that's not meeting the needs of the amount of sick people right now? And again, so there are all sorts of people that have a lot of skills of, of you know, homeopathic medicine or herbal medicines or um, nursing skills they've let kind of, I've seen some friends of mine who are, I was a retired nurse, but I'm going to come back and help my neighbors, you know? And so there's all these ways in which people are reimagining what healthcare could look like too. I, I don't know. I'm just, I, you know, I'm not hopeful, <laughs> but I see the cracks and the possibility in us reimagining who we've been. And again, to turn to the anthology that is the reason you asked me on this is there's so many examples of that. All the examples are, uh, Rojava, you mentioned Dilar, wrote a piece about Rojava, and she looks at the magic of what it means to create a space of three million people, self-governing in very feminist ways, taking care of each other, meeting each other's needs, in the midst of war, in the midst of fascism. There's other pieces that talk about people taking care of each other in beautiful qualitative ways in the midst of gentrification and lack of housing and homelessness. Um, there's other pieces talking about it, doing it in the midst of colonial devastation of stealing their lands. And so, you know, all the another example is you mentioned uh, Nikos in Greece, where capitalism has failed earlier than it has here, or at least people understood it failing earlier there, and the way people built a really pretty intricate solidarity network to take care of each other. So all the examples in this anthology aren't, oh, let's have this ideal laboratory conditions where everything's perfect. I really want to show examples in the present day that are in places that are highly imperfect and dealing with serious dilemmas and how people have carved out space for large numbers of people to decide for themselves. And in every single piece, none of them say it's perfect. They're very beautifully honest and vulnerable about like, yeah, here's the dilemmas we face. Here's how we deal with them. Here's what happens. these structures where we don't allow certain things to happen in our community, but in, with different value systems, right? With a value system of maintaining these people's dignity and thinking about that person being able to somehow hopefully come back into the community and wanting to care for each other, even if someone's done wrong to the community. And so all these communities do that in ways that are different. And, and every piece, 
no matter how hard it gets for them to do that, you you all see them saying implicitly or explicitly, our lives feel qualitatively better. <laughs> there's no question. There's less human suffering and there's more joy and beauty and dignity and empathy and compassion and people have what they need and what they desire. And like that's pretty profound right now <laughs> to come into this moment where we have the chance to kind of recalibrate based on ethics and the ethics that we're all experiencing, those of us who are, you know, I mean, we're all experiencing a range of emotions. <laughs> Grief, I think, though, is a profoundly profound human emotion that in a way that opens up space for us to to feel the beauty of what we love because we only grieve things we love. So even the motion of grief right now is telling us, well, what do I really love? What do I really care about? But we're all having this moment to recalibrate what we want the new world to look like together, deciding that together. I really want to emphasize, just feel like, you know, that's the key. It's like everyone, everyone who's listening to this, you know, it's like, I know it's, I can barely get one tenth of what I want to do done each day. I don't know what it is, but it's, I think it's grief. I, I think it's the weight of uncertainty, the anxiety, not having human contact. We need each other. We're, we're social creatures, right? But we can't get much done. But I really, I really keep asking people, think about what gift is inside you that you want to give and just give it to whoever you can give it to right now in in the smallest or the biggest, but think about what beauty you can put out there. And when we link up all those beautiful things, it you you notice it in the, you, you know, I walk a lot, you notice it in the landscape. Every day I've been writing these little picture posts um, under uh, COVID-19, <laughs> but, but of my walks. And every day I notice something different is, you know, people deciding one day that they're going to put, uh, for kids getting the idea from each other somehow, you know, maybe on social media, but they get outside with chalk and they're all chalking all these games that people can play at a social distance from each other on the ground to encourage you to dance or to sing or to hop or to run or to skip and or to act like a bird and fly. And then another day I'll walk around and you'll see all these beautiful images in windows where people are trying to encourage people in different ways. Some of them too hopeful, some of them really just beautiful and poignant, you know, and I, so you, there is a way in which we're, we're putting our gifts out there already and you see someone else do it and you go, Hey, I can do that too. It's not so hard to make a sign and put in my window. It's not so hard to maybe sew some masks and put them out in a little box in front of my house or turn my little library in my community into a little food distribution center or whatever your gift is. I, I really think that's the beginning of us deciding for ourselves because then we see, hey, my neighbor's doing it. I could decide to do that too. And maybe I want to talk to my neighbor. And uh, I know I'm talking a lot, but I also think the real a poignant moment also might be May 1st, which is... For those who know the history, is basically like an anarchist holiday. It was because anarchists were murdered in by the police in Chicago in a in a horrible um, the Haymarket uh, tragedy, Haymarket martyrs. Um, look up the history of May Day. But May Day's always been a day when people have celebrated those who are don't go along with society, the the feminists, the witches, the queers, the rebels, <laughs> the the people that have asked for a world in which we all fit. And so I hope this May Day that we put out into the world what we want the world to be. And I know there's all these beautiful calls globally for let's all together say we can't pay rent because none of us can afford to do that anymore. Let's all say we don't want to go back to the work in the way it was. We don't abide by capitalism anymore. Let's all say we want something different. You know, so I'm, I don't know, even symbolically, I hope that day becomes a celebration of, of a direction we want the world to go into.
We have been speaking with writer and editor Cindy Milstein, author of the collection of essays, Deciding for Ourselves, The Promise of Direct Democracy. And as Cindy was talking about the power of grief, she is also the editor and contributor to the essay collection, Rebellious Morning, the collective work of grief, which we discussed with Cindy back in November of 2017. And you can hear that conversation at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on Cindy's name. That's Cindy Milstein, M-I-L-S-T-E-I-N. And you can follow Cindy on Twitter, at Cindy Milstein. Cindy, as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Why do we seemingly abandon that social good when it's normal again? Why do we have the social good only in times of crisis? Here in Chicago, it's really typical of local TV news when there's a huge snowstorm. Look at how nice the people are being. They're shoveling each other's walks. Then there's no reports about the people who parked in front of your house and then you put sand in their gas tank. At the end of CBS Evening News every night, they have these really great feel-good stories about what's happening during the COVID-19 global pandemic. But they don't have the stories of the worst possible things that are happening with COVID-19. For instance, nobody, no network has reported that every person, as of last Friday, every person who has died of COVID-19 in St. Louis is black. So what happens? Why do we abandon that social good when it's normal again? Yeah. I think people get scared of what's the uncertainty. Like they, People hang on to what they know because they're scared of what they don't know. But right now we're all collectively facing a moment of not knowing what's coming. So maybe this time, you know, Things don't always happen the same. You know, there's been other pandemics in the, or other epidemics in, in his human history where pe- nothing went back to normal and people lived in qualitatively better ways for decades or centuries afterward until power structures crushed them. <laughs> so, you know, we have to fight to keep open the space of caring for each other and including the space of, yeah. So, you know, there's no guarantees with any structure, right? The Fascists are battling it out with us who aren't fascists. Those of us who have an anarchistic, lowercase communistic, lowercase socialistic view of the world that everybody can fit, everybody can take care of each other. You know, we have to keep that space open as long as possible. Yeah. So I just, again, encourage, I, you know, I've really, this anthology I feel I'm really proud of because it shows that there's spaces that have survived for 10 years, for 30 years, for 50 years. Maybe it's not forever, but more people live qualitative lives, less people suffer. Isn't that the goal <laughs> always? Even if it's not for everybody, for as many as we can make it possible, let's do it. Yeah, and I think that your book, and if our listeners heard our interview a couple of weeks ago with Brienne Foz about her book of uh, Black Feminist Manifestos, a collection of Black Feminist Manifestos, these two books, the essays that are in these two books, are so important for what we are living through right now. So, Cindy, again, your Rebellious Morning collection was fantastic. This collection is even better. I want to interview a whole bunch of people who are in your book, who are featured in your book. So I'm gonna, we're going to be emailing you and seeing if we can do a series of interviews. We want to get your suggestions as to which people or which essays you'd like us to feature the most. So we're really looking forward to doing a series of interviews about your book. So thank you very much for introducing us to it. It really is fantastic work. And thanks for being back on our show again. Thank you. I'm really grateful for having me a second time. Thank you. All right. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This 
is hell. I suppose everybody's waiting for me to wish everybody a happy 420, I guess. You think I'm supposed to do that, Alex? Is that necessary? Or do we should we do that? Is that mandatory? Is that an FCC obligation? Do you know? Too on brand. Yeah, I know. I'm thinking I shouldn't even do it. Don't even mention it, right? Who cares? What are you going to do? Go outside and smoke pot at 420 and look at your neighbors? Doing that every other day. <laughs> what the hell? I don't really see it anymore. 420 is kind of every day now, right? It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On April 22nd in the year 238, 1780 years ago this Wednesday, the Roman Senate was having trouble dealing with dangerous political instability in what would come to be known as the year of six emperors. And when you have six emperors in one year, that's some political instability. The outrageously brutal emperor, Maximinius Thrax, awesome name, Maximinius Thrax, had recently been overthrown and replaced by the father and son emperors Gordian I and Gordian II, but the reign of the Gordians had lasted only 20 days until the son Gordian II was killed by troops of a rival provincial governor and the father, Gordian I, reacted by committing suicide. That's quite a team. Meanwhile, the hated Maximinius was preparing to march on Rome with a new army to reclaim the imperial throne. Faced with the dangerous power vacuum, the Roman emperors or Roman senators saw now hurriedly elected two of their own as co-emperors, Balbinus and Pupianus which is even a better name than Maximinius Thrax. But the new co-emperors distrusted each other because nobody trusts Pupianus and were also bitterly resented by the Roman soldiers. Balbinus and Pupianus would later only would last only three months in power before sword-bearing members of the Praetorian Guard broke into the Imperial Palace and chopped them both to death, thus clearing the way for the sixth emperor in a single year, the terrified 13-year-old Gordian III. Six emperors, one year, twice having two emperors share the throne, ending the year with a teenager ruling the empire. Could be worse. At least they didn't have to deal with a global pandemic. In Rotten History, April 24th, 1915, 105 years ago this Friday, against the background of World War I and the Ottoman Turkish capital of Constantinople, Prime Minister Mehmet Talat Pasha, leader of the political movement known as the Young Turks ordered the arrest of some 250 American intellectuals, or, sorry, Armenian intellectuals, professionals, and political leaders, most of whom were sent to the Turkish region of Anatolia and ultimately murdered. So that's where that lefty talk show, The Young Turks, got their name? Kind of weird that you name your left-wing talk show after a political movement that arrested and ultimately murdered Armenian intellectuals, professionals, and political leader leaders. To each his own, I guess. I like this as hell better. This event, intended to effectively decapitate the Armenian community in the Ottoman Empire, is recognized today as the beginning of the Armenian Genocide, in which an estimated one and a half million Armenian people were killed by forced labor, starvation, death marches, medical poisoning, gas poisoning, mass burning, gun massacres over eight years. Again, a left-wing talk show is named after... The people who started the Armenian Genocide? Is that just me, or is that really effed up? It was a broad, sweeping extermination that Talat and his inner circle had planned for several years as part of an Ottoman policy of Turkification, 
or what would be known today as ethnic cleansing, genocide, ethnic cleansing, murders, arrests. Now, that's what you want to name your radical political talk show after. As the outside world became aware of the mass carnage, Talat was unrepentant. As is the show Young Turks, which apparently refuses to change its title. But after a series of Ottoman military defeats in the war, Talat fled in 1918 to Berlin, where his movements were closely watched by British and Russian intelligence services. German intelligence was a little busy at the time. And in 1921, Talat was shot to death by an Armenian agent as he emerged from his home in the Berlin neighborhood of Charlottenburg. The agent, Sogo Man Telirian, was tried and acquitted in a German court and is now revered as an Armenian national hero. And still the Young Turks have not changed the name of their show since airing for the first time on Valentine's Day 2002. This can't be the first time this has come up, can it? Please, somebody, anybody, email us at chuckatthisishell.com or elksatthisishell.com and please tell me the Young Turks, that name for their show has been controversial since the very beginning and I'm just learning about how historically stupid that the name really is. I, I just, I don't get it. Maybe they should go with a name like Brown Shirts, because they wear brown shirts. In Rotten History, April 26, 1937, 83 years ago, this coming Sunday, warplanes of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy conducted an aerial bombing of the town of Guernica in the Basque region of northern Spain. Horrible event. Incredible painting. Pretty good literary magazine, too. Uh, the bombing was carried out at the request of General Francisco Franco to further his aim of crushing Basque separatists and Republican socialists in the Spanish Civil War, starting in the late afternoon on a market day when area farmers congregated in Guernica to sell food, thus the prevalence of animals in Picasso's painting. The planes came in waves for more than three hours, dropping 100,000 pounds of high explosives and incendiaries, blowing up bridges and killing hundreds of unarmed civilians. Meanwhile, an armaments factory just outside of town was left completely untouched, revealing the bombing of Guernica to be a war crime as it targeted civilians. The aerial bombing of Guernica was one of the first such atrocities to horrify the world, and it provoked expressions of outrage by some of the world's prominent artists, including the famous mural by Pablo Picasso. Franco's aim in bombing a non-military target had been to demoralize his opponents, and he would succeed in defeating them and establishing an anti-communist dictatorship that would eventually draw financial aid from the United States and endure until his death in 1975. So what? You're a war criminal. Big deal. The United States will still give you money. The Germans saw how well Guernica had worked and would eventually target civilians in their bombing of the UK, which was a war crime. The UK, in turn, when they got their opportunity, followed Franco's and Hitler's war crimes with some of Churchill's own by bombing the civilians of Dresden. Completely unrelated, I'm sure, are the U.S. bombings of civilians in Tokyo, Hiroshima, and Nagasaki that all went unpunished. For that being the time of the greatest generation, there sure were lots of war crimes. Also in Rotten History on April 26, 1942, 78 years ago, this coming Sunday, in the imperial Japanese-controlled region of Manchuria, in northern China, an explosion of gas and coal dust sent fire ranging through the Benshihu Colliery, which is a coal mine, where some 4,600 poorly fed coal miners were working underground in miserable conditions with insufficient clothing and equipment. There's lots of rotten history down in the coal mines all over the world. In an attempt to suffocate the fire, the Japanese mine operators 
shut down the ventilation system and sealed the entrance to the mine shafts, thus trapping the workers inside, which makes you wonder what they were trying to save from the fire if not the miners. As distraught relatives of the miners arrived on the scene, they were pushed back by guards who set up an electric fence to keep them away. Over the next 10 days, 1,549 bodies were removed from the coal mine. Most of the workers were found to have died not from the fire itself, but from inhalation of poisonous carbon monoxide. The Ben Shihu Colliery accident remains the most deadly coal mining disaster in history. And despite the long history of horrific, deadly events in coal mining history, I'm telling you, this has got to be the most inhumane that we've ever come across here on Rotten History. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Tuesdays Live, this is Hell, streaming at 10 a.m. on this is, at thisishell.com, and then podcasts uh, by 2 p.m. Uh, first of all, the Young Turks were named after that 1981 Rod Stewart banger, not the uh, hmm. revolutionary group. Still, you should probably look into that, don't you think? No, that song's great. <laughs> You were too cool in the 80s to like Rod Stewart, probably, right? Oh, dude, please. Go back and listen to that I song. I was too cool when I was six years old. <laughs> I remember my neighbors across the street having this argument over who was cuter, Rod Stewart or Michael Jackson, and I ran for my life. What year? I don't know. I have no idea. Tomorrow, we're going to have Robert Nichols on the show to talk about his book, Theft is Property, Dispossession, and Critical Theory. I just hate that, that they call themselves the Young Turks because it just reminds me that Stupid thing, Air America, that radio uh, outlet, the radio network, Air America, that was talking to me at one point about being on their stupid network, uh, and how Air America was the name of the CIA-run drug smuggling outfit in Laos and Cambodia. So you'd probably not want to mention name your left-wing network after a CIA drug smuggling outfit in Southeast Asia, just like you might not want to name your... Radio show. I'm sure it was the other American who got involved uh, with. Dude, dude, just ridiculous. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Cindy Milstein for being, for returning to This Is Hell this week. Also, thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for today's Rotten History. Also, thanks to Alex Jerry for producing today's show and always special thanks to Theron Humiston who put all this together. Truly revolting radio. This is Hell. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.